Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Charles Brass. Charles Brass helped create the Future of Work Foundation in 1991. This foray into the world of foresight represented his fourth career change. Beginning as a wedding photographer, he became a school teacher and then a corporate human resources executive. It was in this latter role that Charles became involved in a project designed to envisage the world of work in the year 2020. And he realised there was more to thinking about the future than simply asking people what they thought might happen in the future. In the early 2000s, the Future of Work Foundation merged with Jan Lee Martin's created Futures Foundation. And since then, Charles has continued to work with, as he puts it, with anyone who will sit still long enough to pay serious attention to creating the future. Welcome to FuturePod, Charles. G'day, Peter. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Charles. So, the Charles Brass story, what is it? So, yes, in the late 1980s, after a couple of twists and turns in my career, I found myself on the board of the Professional Association for HR Practitioners. And this was at a time when HR was just beginning. It was emerging out of the separate professions, if you like, of personnel, industrial relations, training, health and safety, which had been separate occupations up until that moment and they were being merged inside corporations and inside professional associations into one body, which is now known in Australia as the Australian Human Resources Institute. And the national board of that organisation in the late 80s wanted to demonstrate to the world the value of HR practitioners. Right. So we came up with a, the idea that we would create, we'd write a book. A uh, very common way of writing a book nowadays, but back then it was a relatively uncommon way. The idea was that the book would have a number of chapters written by different people and organisations. Uh, and the, then there would be a, pro, a, a prescript or an introduction and a postscript written by the Human Resources Institute to demonstrate how clever we were at pulling together the various threads. And the book was going to be called Australians at Work in 2020. So we decided we wanted a 2020 vision for the future of work. We thought this was pretty clever. And it turned out to be prescient. We went out to all sorts of organisations uh, and individuals. The federal government was involved. We asked the opposition. They didn't come at that time, but uh, we went to trade unions. We went to church groups. We went to women's groups. We went to big businesses, individuals. The Lord Mayor of Melbourne got involved. We had all sorts of people involved. We asked them all one simple question. What do you think work will look like in 2020? And they wrote us a chapter. Uh, I didn't know the phrase, or we didn't know the phrase. I wasn't the only one involved in the project. We didn't know the phrase Delphi project at that time, the Delphi <laughs> process, but we engaged in the Delphi process. It took us a year. They wrote us a chapter each. We compiled that together and then fed it back to them and said, having read what other people have to say, do you want to change anything you wrote? And so these, some people went through two and three revisions of their various contributions 
And then we came towards the end of the time and the idea was to turn this into our book and also to write the forward and the afterward for the book. Unfortunately, HR practitioners can't count. <laughs> and we decided that a 2020 vision had to have 20 chapters and we had 29 completed submissions and we didn't know what to do about that. And so what we did was we invited uh, everybody who submitted to come to a two-day event at a hotel in Sydney. And we should have known we were in trouble when 43 people turned up to the two days, including three lawyers. <laughs> three different organisations brought lawyers along designed to protect their interests in this process. And to describe the first day of that event as chaos is to do the phrase chaos a misservice. It was appalling. <laughs> we had some very, very high-profile and high opinionated people stamping their foot on the floor and saying, <laughs> I don't care what anybody else thinks. My view of this is going in your book and it's going to be chapter one. Thank you very much. <laughs> and we, we literally finished that day without knowing what to do. On the evening of the day, the, there were a group of us, there were a couple of people uh, facilitating this event. I wasn't one. Uh, but there were a couple of people facilitating the event and we went for a walk that evening and Along the course of that walk, we mused that perhaps we might have asked the wrong question in the first place. And so for want of something better to do, we turned up on the second morning and said, look, we don't know what to do with this either, but just out of curiosity, what difference would it have made if a year ago, instead of asking you what do you think work will look like in 2020, we'd asked you what would you like work to look like in 2020? And the mood of the room changed instantly. A whole bunch of people said, oh, we don't want most of what we think is going to happen to happen. Here's what we want. And by the end of that day, we actually had a, a manifesto. Um, I call it a vision statement, 314 words, which I can probably quote, which was a consensus of people in the room about what they would like work to look like in 2020. And so everybody went home relatively happy, except the Australian Human Resources Institute, because instead of getting a book, they got 314 words and they didn't think they could publish that. So, in fact, the Institute was launched without its wonderful book and the book 2020, Australians at Work in 2020 never made the presses. It doesn't exist. All the material still exists in my library or in the Futures Foundation library. And the best the HR Institute did was in, in 1991, it published uh, as a lead story in its uh, member journal the story of the process, mm. but the book never got published. But it had a profound impact on me personally and some other people in the room for two reasons. One, the obvious one, is that it provided a sort of guiding or vision statement for what we might like, what changes we might like to see in the world to turn it into a world we'd actually like to live in in 2020 rather than one we just felt we were stumbling into. But similarly, for me, it, it had a, a profound impact about the, the important point of asking the right question in mm. the first place. Yeah. And as you said in your introduction, that led to the creation of the Future of Work Foundation, whose mission was to bring about that vision uh, from 1989-1990 in the year 2020. Now, as it happens, we're recording this in 2020, and it's uh, not surprisingly caused me and a few others to go back and have a look at that vision statement. 
this isn't the place to have the conversation. But needless to say, uh, much of it hasn't arrived. Bits of it have, but there's still a bit of room to go. One of the things we've contemplated doing but haven't done largely because of COVID was trying to get people together and, and ask, here's what people said in 1990 they'd like to happen in 2020. Do you still think this is good? And if so, what do we need to do to bring it about by 2030, 2040, 2050? That may well happen at some time in the future. But it was that that led me to understand the importance of thinking about the future. That brought me into connection with all sorts of people in the space called Futures and and Foresight. In particular, it introduced me to Jan Lee Martin, who, although she wasn't part of that original event, one of the facilitators of the event is a futurist called Peter Saul, who was on the board of Jan Lee Martin's Futures Foundation, which hadn't actually been created, but was just in the process of being created at that time. He introduced me to Jan, and that led to things we're going to talk about as this unfolds. Mm, good story. It's a great story of... Uh... Yes, I've been in I've been in workshops that I've actually been running where I've got to as you say the night of night 1 where you go for the walk not knowing what the heck you're going to do <laughs> at the start of night of morning 2. Yes. So again from that what's then what's the segue from that into into where you are now is that pretty well it or is that is there more to add about people or things that have played a pivotal role in getting to you to where you are? Oh yes, it, it- that was just the very, that's just the introduction. So that happened uh, in 1990, 1991. I, I think Jan created the Futures Foundation in 92 or 93 or thereabouts. And we kept in contact. We'll talk a little later about where the Futures Foundation is now. So one of the questions for the Future of Work Foundation was, what are we going to do about this? So what does it mean to have set up an organisation? I actually quit my corporate role at that time. Um, this is naive. Uh, naive. How, how, how sometimes people can be called to follow a passion. Mm. I quit the corporate role and became the, the driver behind the Future of Work Foundation with the objective of bringing about that change. You know, that 314 words sat on my on my wall and the question was what are we doing to bring that about and we did a a variety of things which I now recognise have resonances in the futures space. We uh, ran what we called futures forums where we've we've been running futures forums since the early 90s and the idea of a futures forum was we invited someone who had something to say about what would make Australia a better place, not necessarily around work and jobs, although that was the focus. We got them to come and say what they would, what they thought would make Australia a better place and then we invited an audience of no more than 20 people and the theory was that they would sit in the room listening to that person and then at the end of that they would say, well, we think this is a good idea or we don't think this is a good idea and if we do think it's a good idea, here's how we'll support it and we'll make things happen. And so the idea was it was meant to be focused on achieving things. I have to say it never quite worked out that way. You've had plenty of experience in sessions like this. Someone would come along and talk and then what would happen is people would ask questions and then they'd get up and leave and nothing much particularly happened. But in that process, we were asking who do we want to come along, who is there in the world in Australia who has something to say 
about making Australia a better place. And so I think forum number three was Richard Haynes. Forum number two was Richard Borden. Forum number five was Richard Slaughter. Forum number six was Peter Elliard. So we just went around and found these people, whom none of whom I knew at the time, but who had some sort of public visibility that in some way they were saying they would want to make Australia a better place. We invited them to come along and be part of a forum. They came along, were part of a forum. We did a little early version of FuturePod. We recorded these and we made them available to people. At one point, we were working with Michael Schilberger, who was a journalist at the time, trying to turn them into a commercial sort of early podcast product. That didn't work. But that was how I got to meet people like Richard Slaughter and Richard Haynes and people like that. And then I mentioned the two of them because, as you well know, they then came together in the late uh, 90s to put together the Foresight Program at Swinburne. Mm. And so I was on the periphery of that whole process with uh, Adolf Hannick at the time. I also had a I knew Adolf through another role. And so many of those people who were conspiring to make that happen, I had a peripheral role in that whole process. And ultimately, as you know, because you were my teacher, I came along and did the Foresight Masters. But it was meeting all of those people at the time that introduced me to the world of futures and foresight. Thanks, Charles. Question two, Charles, the one where I encourage the guests to talk about a, you know, a tool or a framework or, or a method or an approach that is central to how they practice. So what do you want to talk to the listeners about? I'm actually going to explain this out of order, uh, unfortunately, because I'd, I'd like to be able to explain it in order. But one of the things that you were adamant about when you were teaching the teaching me at least in the Foresight Masters, you and, and Rowena particularly, were that everybody ought to have an interest in the future. Uh, not necessarily that everybody was a futurist, but everybody ought to have an interest in the future. And that philosophy has absolutely stuck to me like glue since this began. The future is not some abstract, rarefied place that only some people are interested in. The future is certainly not the place that futurists are somehow uniquely interested in. The future is, in fact, something we are all interested in. By definition, Mm. as it wasn't George Burns, as many people think, it was actually someone else, but as someone said in the late 1890s, I'm particularly interested in the future because that's where I'm going to spend the rest of my life. (laughs) And that's true of all of us, both in our individual lives and in our collective lives, where the collective is family, community, company, government, whatever. And so what has particularly informed my thinking about everything I've done in futures is what does it mean to actually get everybody to recognise that they have an interest in the future? Mm. And as I've found over 30 years, it takes no time at all No time at all to get everybody to say they're interested in the future. Everybody says that. 
everybody, from the trivial things of, yes, I'm working out whether I'm ever going to go on a cruise again now that COVID-19 has struck, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, to whatever it is, I, I'm going to go and study something because I want to change my career to whatever, whatever it is. Everybody has an interest in the future. The challenge is not getting them to express an interest in the future. The challenge is getting them to do anything seriously about that. Yeah. And that's been where my focus has been. How can you, in a way that is engaging to whomever you are addressing at any point in time, get them to want to stay with their interest in the future long enough to do something about it? And in that regard, the thing that I have found most helpful of all the possible tools that are out there is the futures cone, given that this is a certainly has a, a bit of an academic history. I'll acknowledge that there's a bit of uncertainty between Clem Bezold and Joe Voros about exactly who created this and where it came from. So we won't get into all that. But as a tool, what the Futures Cone demonstrates in two dimensions is that the future is an infinite space because what the Futures Cone says is if you are looking out into the future, what you see is infiniteness. And then what it attempts to do is to somehow codify or stratify or at least name different parts of the future in ways that mean something to people. Yep. And I found that incredibly useful. It, mm. it means that pe everybody acknowledges if you have a conversation with them, yes, I can see that there is a considerable difference and a useful difference between the predicted future and the possible future. Mm. Now, that still doesn't cause many of them to say, okay, I actually want to spend some time exploring what those differences mean to me. But nonetheless, that tool has been of immense value to me. It then goes on to be, that's only, that's only part of its immense value, is the fact that it, it allows you to acknowledge very quickly with whomever you're talking that the there is no such thing as that future. There are many alternative possible futures or alternative types of future out there and that there's value then in, in exploring those. It then does two other things from my point. Well, it does one other thing and then there's one step that goes beyond that. It then the last P in the futures cone is the prefer preferable or preferred future, which is a qualitative different step into the future. It says, yes, there are all these different types of futures out there. The future is infinite and you can explore them and there's predicted and preferable and uh, probable and possible and preposterous and all those other Ps. But then at the end of the day, the challenge for you is, what am I going to do with all that? And the first thing you do is say, okay, which of those bits of the future do I like? Mm -hmm. Which of those bits of the future do I not like? And then the final step, which is a little outside the cone, but the final step is to say, okay, now that I've worked that out, what do I need to do to make what I like happen? And what do I need to do to make what I don't like not happen? Mm. And that's why I absolutely adamant with every conversation I have that actually venturing into the future or using the futures cone is not about the future at all, really. Yeah. The future is a tool you're using yeah. to help you make better decisions today. That's right. We're presentists, not futurists. Exactly. We're, yeah. we're present, but we're presentists who have spent time both exploring the past because, in fact, that's the first step. The first step is to understand how the past brought us to the present. 
And then the second step is to say the future is out there and it is variable. It is inherently uncertain, but that doesn't mean anything goes. There are options out there for you to choose between. And then finally, you make some choice among those options and decide what you're going to do today. Yeah, Wendell Bell certainly used to say that the point of the future is it makes the consequence of our actions matter. In other Mm. words, it makes the connection between the things I do now or don't do and the futures I want or don't want. It actually draws those into into some sort of correlation. And that that is that he said was people people had not necessarily made that connection between the futures they fear and the futures they wish and the decisions they make that they actually do they actually do link up and i actually think that's part of the reason why many people are scared off by futurists because they think they're going to be wandering off into some meaningless esoteric space whereas in fact good futurists and you've just mentioned Wendell Bell know that the whole point is grounding it back in the present mm. So in terms of, so you talked about the willingness of people to take it seriously and, as you say, to to sit still long enough to want to do something about it. I mean, what is it, what's been the guiding idea for how we get people to want to do something about the future? Well, so I actually don't think that's difficult. I, I don't think that's difficult at all, uh, really. There is a difficulty in getting people to pay someone for that and most most if not everybody in the world needs to actually get attract some income in order to be able to live in the world even at dinner party conversations the thing might wander off into other territories but eventually if you stay in the dinner party conversation long enough you can get people to to sit down and to start exploring alternative futures i'm finding that particularly true in this time of covid 19 we have as a species, not just as Australians, but as a species, become much more aware that not only is the future unpredictable, but once you're in the middle of the sort of turbulence that we're in now, there are so many possibilities out there. Everybody acknowledges there are so many possibilities out there that it doesn't take long to get people starting to engage with those possibilities. One of the delights for me of the last little while is the way we've operated the Futures Foundation that I've been part of. It's been, for the most part, uh, some people will know it has a bit of a history, but for the most part it's been viable enough to keep itself moving along comfortably in the world, which means that I've had the privilege of having all sorts of conversations with all sorts of people exploring all sorts of futures just because that's what people are interested in. And just enough of those have actually turned into useful, productive foresight work that I've had enough income to keep a roof over my head. But I genuinely believe that it is a delight and a privilege to be in possession of some of the tools, techniques and understandings that I've got through my foresight work that I can actually help anybody who is in any way vaguely uncertain about the future become a little more certain about that. I don't think that's actually difficult. The thing about COVID is that we've seen a very wide disparity of the ways people do respond given uncertainty. 
and we see people who respond quickly and swiftly and we see people who prevaricate or tell outright fairy stories rather than face up to a situation. And that's absolutely where the value of a good futurist or foresight practitioner comes in, is both calling that out when they see it and being able to demonstrate that there are more robust, more useful, more credible ways of engaging with the future. It's a travesty that some of the political leaders in most countries don't have connection to the sorts of futures and foresight thinking that would prevent them doing some of the fairy stories you've just described. Yeah, yes, they're true. Thanks, Charles. Third question, the one I encourage the guests to talk about how they are making sense of the emerging futures around them, both the futures that interest them or the futures that possibly concern them, and also in terms of how far into the future or who or whose future you are kind of looking at. But how does Charles Brass sense the emerging futures around him and his family and his community? Again, you you place the context where you want. Well, I, I could talk about my family. At the time that the Future of Work Foundation was created, my first two children had just been born. My third child wasn't even born. My children are now in their early 30s and late 20s. And one of the reasons why I decided to commit to quit the corporate world I was in was that having realised that there was a potential better future out there, I wanted to actually do something to create it. Mm. And I do chastise myself seriously on a number of occasions for not having done enough in the last 30 years because my children are going to inherit a world and I'm not sure it's a better world than, than the one I was fighting against in 1990. Um, so I could spend time talking about that, but, but I'm not going to because the biggest context in which I personally operate currently is actually uh, the world of education. And that's a coincidence. And so I need to explain a little bit of the, the coincidence. It's not by design. Uh, when Jan Lee Martin created the Futures Foundation, her vision was to bring foresight and futures thinking into large corporations. Yep. And, uh, well, as you know, Peter, because you worked in the tax office, the tax office was one of the first peaked, one of the first large organisations that connected with the Futures Foundation yep. to get that type of thinking into the organisation. That was the original vision, and Jan and a number of people carried that forward for about 10, 10 years or so. In the early 2000s, Jan was finding that both personally and professionally more difficult. And so the, she ended up, uh, we ended up merging the Futures Foundation into the Future of Work Foundation and creating what is was carried on the name Futures Foundation. And as a part of that process, we asked the question, was that the right base for the Futures Foundation or was there another base? And we decided that, the, that a version of the original base of the Future of Work Foundation was more li likely to be both productive and useful. 
And that is that, as it is now, the Futures Foundation is a membership organisation that opens membership to anybody in Australia. If you have $195 a year, you too can join the Futures Foundation. And we put out all sorts of marketing things to various in various ways in the early 2000s, and all sorts of people and organisations uh, came along and joined the Futures Foundation. And by, I think, more coincidence than design, about 40% of the current members and historical members of the Futures Foundation have been secondary schools. Mm. It's probably not completely accidental because much of the reason for that was around future of work, jobs and careers. So we'd already been doing in the Future of Work Foundation a bit of work in schools around future jobs and careers. Uh, And so a fair bit of the reason I suspect why schools joined was around that. But uh, since then, in more recent years, uh, there are two other reasons why schools are part of the Futures Foundation. One of them also has an historical, has has a contemporary link, and that is the Teach the Future organisation that Peter Bishop has created. It's completely independent, although we're the Australian arm of Teach the Future, but Teach the Future is designed to get futures thinking and futures tools into schools. Um, That's its aim and objective. And, in fact, to go back to Richard Slaughter, that was one of the things Richard was doing well before I knew him, Um, and he'd had... He'd had connections with various parts of Australia trying to get that stuff done in the 80s and 90s. So the idea that there are futures tools and techniques that can be brought into the curriculum is something that we've brought to our education members. And the third thing that's that's probably the most foresight-related component of uh, education interest is that since the 1990s, Even state schools in Australia have been much more required to be self-sustaining and self-generating entities. Once upon a time, if you were a state school, the central department of education handed you your students, handed you your teachers, handed you your curriculum and said, go do it. Since the 90s, that hasn't happened. Um, schools can now hire, do hire their own teachers, even in the education system. They are more responsible for controlling curriculum and they're even able to do and have to do a whole lot of work to generate students. Schools, particularly in the private sector, have been doing this for a long time, but also in the public sector, are being forced to ask themselves what sort of a school do we want to be in the future and how are we marketing ourselves to the world? So these these are the reasons perhaps why schools joined the Futures Foundation. Let me go back a little and say there's a bit of a, a honey trap in the Futures Foundation. It's not really all, it's not certainly not secret and it's not all that invisible, and that is that everybody who ever joins the Futures Foundation uh, gets a phone call from a futurist that says, why did you do that? Why is it that you've suddenly decided you're interested in the future? And how is it that a futurist might be able to help you? Yep. And so that's the, that's the logic. So my, my logic for maintaining the Futures Foundation is that it is a vehicle for identifying what in marketing terms would be called the early adopters 
and then connecting them with people who have some services to deliver on. And that's what we do. And we've been doing that for since 2002. And so now coming back to the question of context and futures and things, since 40% of our members are schools, that means a lot of work that I particularly am doing is in and around education and schools. And I'm particularly interested in that. It comes back to the whole question of family and my own kids because I am convinced that it is the education that we provide to our children that is going to make the difference in the future. So I'm vitally interested in the way the education systems are currently positioning themselves to prepare people to be leaders of the future. So how are they? How do you think they're travelling in that preparation task? Uh, Like everything else, it's mixed. Um, There are some exemplary examples in various places and there are some appalling examples. So that, that's true of everything. And also it's still very, very person contingent. Uh, we've learned over the 20 years I've been doing this that the principal in the school is a crucial factor mm. in the whole process. Um, if you've got the right principal, you've got a chance that you, you, you're going to be doing these things if you haven't got the right principal. And since principals change, relatively regularly, the nature of the school can change far more quickly than we'd like to think. Yeah. Uh, so that does make a difference. Thanks, Charles. Question four, the communication challenge question of how does Charles Brass explain what he does to someone who doesn't necessarily understand what Charles Price does. I have listened to, and congratulations, Peter, on your podcast. I've listened to them all, and I prepared for this question with a case study. I currently live in an apartment uh, or a unit that is right next door to a 24-hour chemist. It's uh, one of the few 24-hour chemists in the area, uh, and it's got a nice little niche model as a 24-hour chemist. Almost everybody in my area knows it because it's open 24 hours a day. About uh, four or five years ago, a large uh, warehouse space about 150 metres from this chemist became available and the wonderful, in inverted commas, franchise chemist warehouse bought this space and converted it into a chemist warehouse. And it didn't take much of a futurist to recognise that this was going to have a bit of a potential impact on the area. And uh, what I actually, there's a little amount of um, choreography in this. I was in the chemist next door picking up a prescription for my wife and uh, because when you pick up a prescription for someone, the agent has to provide their name and address on the bottom of the prescription form. A woman asked me for my name and address and I pulled out a business card and my business card for 20 years has said futurist on it. And I pulled out my business card and I gave it to her. I know this is going to happen because it happens every time. Yep. In parenthesis, it's one reason why I never tell anybody when I travel, internet, travel internationally that I'm a futurist because I never get through immigration and customs because they always want to talk about it. 
So I handed over my card and she read my name and she read Futurist and she said, what does that mean? And I said, well, what that means is if anybody's got any doubt or uncertainty or is worried about the future, um, Futurists are people who know how to help people through that process. And she took me aside and said, we're a bit worried about what this chemist warehouse is going to mean for us. Mm. And I said, I'm not surprised at that. And what I would do is sit down and talk to you through that process. And so she came into my lounge room one day with her partner and we sat down and we started talking. And we've been, we worked together for about two years. She doesn't need me anymore. Um, yeah. She's got herself very well in place. She will, we've agreed, in, uh, in 2025, um, if she's still running the business and she's not sure she will be, she's going to engage me again and we're going to go back through a process, a formal process and have a look. But we sat down and, and I basically said, what is it you're worried about? Mm. And we went from there. Uh, and that is exactly how I go about everything I do. It goes back to my comment about you join the Futures Foundation. I'm very likely to be the person who gives you a call. Uh, why did you do that? Why are you interested in the future? And uh, my argument would be if as a futurist you can't answer that question in a useful way, then you are not a particularly competent futurist. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a classic you would have heard again. So many of the guests have said you start the conversation where people are. Exactly. You start with the issues that they have and you go from there. Which incidentally is why I consider the tools and techniques that futurists are taught are incredibly important, but they're not that important that the client needs to know about them. Yeah. They're important that the futurist knows about them and every now and again it's useful to tell a client about them particularly if that client is going to carry on using these tools in the, whatever their setting is. It's useful if they know what they are and they have some way of thinking about them. So towards the back end of a project, you might be saying to someone, well, these are the sorts of questions or the sorts of things you want to keep asking yourself as you go along. But I'm never, never one who, no one would ever know that I had a tool in my toolkit um, in the conversation. Um, I'm rattling the tools in my head uh, until they until they become necessary, and that's not a lot till a long way down the road. Thanks, Charles. We're at question five. So, have you got a sense what you want to talk about? Yes, I have. It has struck me for some time that the most difficult challenges around the future are confronting what in what Sahail and Ayatollah and others who use CLA would be the mm. deepest levels, the worldviews um, that, that that we all live, uh, we are immersed in, that old adage about don't ask a fish about water, they have no idea what water is, that the biggest challenges are the deep worldviews uh, that we take for granted. And it strikes me that there are two planes on which those worldviews currently require the most challenge. The first is our relationship with the natural world, 
this has manifested what we currently talk about as climate change or species extinction or whatever, but it's it's the relationship between human beings and the planet that nurtures and harbours us for the last four or five billion years. It's clear that we have allowed ourselves to operate in a way that is increasingly inconsistent with the operating principles of that underlying natural world, and we need to do something about that. And, um, I'm actually, to be honest, uh, I'm less worried about that than I am about the second thing I'm going to talk about because <laughs> the one thing I and everybody else knows is the natural world doesn't give too much of a damn about us. If we yeah. stuff up, it'll just go on happily and create something else. So if we're too stupid to fix our relationship, our underlying relationship with the planet, well, that's bad luck for us. It doesn't affect the planet. But the one that has consumed me and does bother me enormously goes right back to the beginning for me to the future of work and jobs, which is, in fact, in my reading of it, not about work and jobs at all. It's about money. It's about our relationship with money, wealth and value. We have allowed ourselves to create a global economic system that believes that fundamentally the way in which ordinary, quote-unquote, ordinary everyday people can connect with wealth and value is through having, quote-unquote, a job through which they earn income and then they spend that income and that's what makes the economy go round and around. We have, we are so immersed in that way of thinking that it is almost impossible for us to imagine any other way at the same time as that way of thinking that we are immersed in is being destroyed by us. So we are creating technology now that means we don't need people to do stuff. We need fewer and fewer people to do stuff. The the technology that we now have means most of the stuff that needs doing can be done by technology and done cheaper and more effectively. And so those in charge of wanting stuff done are deliberately and quite intelligently getting rid of people wherever they possibly can Mm. at the same time as our economic system says the only way we can operate is if people have access through a job to that wealth. So I'm profoundly interested in the question of whether there are other ways of conceiving our relationship with wealth, money and value that allow the whole world to participate meaningfully that aren't based around that conventional economic notion. And that's what consumes me most of all. And having been thinking about it for the last 20 or 30 years, I'm convinced there are other ways uh, of doing this. I'm mildly confident. Well, no, I'm very confident that our current COVID-19 experience is causing us to think about those ways. I'm mildly confident that it might actually, that we might find some change in the way we operate that might mean we might actually create systems that allow people to participate in ways that they're currently being excluded from participating. So that's the thing that engages me most in the world. And I'm happy to spend as much time as you and your audience want to have to talk about what those alternatives might be and what they might look like and what we might need to do to make it happen. 
Well, I mean, you could you could certainly lay out in terms of the cone. You could certainly lay out some of the possible futures, and maybe even probably good to hear where you put your stick in the ground to talk about preferred. Well, as a okay, in terms of alternatives, there is no doubt that we could create a world, we could maintain a world in which everybody has a job. Uh, if we wanted one, we could create an economic system that gave everybody a job, whether it be a well-paying, forget about whether it's well-paying or meaningful or whatever, but we could give them a job and they could then have income and they could spend it in the world. We could construct a world that looked like that. When Barry Jones wrote Sleepers Wake in 1982, he pointed out that if we wanted to go to full employment, all we would have to do is to cut off the reticulated water system in Melbourne and then everybody would be spending their day walking to Sugarloaf Reservoir or wherever to get water out and bring it home. And if we wanted to pay them for that, they could even have meaningful income for doing that. Now, that's a possibility. We could do that if we wanted to. I suspect for a whole host of reasons we don't want to do that anymore. I know that no business entrepreneur wants to do that anymore. If you're running a business, what you want to do is to produce your widgets as cheaply, efficiently and as quality a product as you possibly can. And invariably, that's increasingly involving technology because technology is both cheap and more reliable than human beings. So we certainly could go back to creating a world like that. We could even go back to a world without money if we really wanted to. I mean, there was a time when money didn't exist and people shared things around in all sorts of ways. So there are a variety of ways in which we could operate. I asked the question, what's a way in which we would like to operate? And here's how I frame it. What I would say is that what we have, as human beings have demonstrated over particularly the last Five or 10,000 years of our history, which is not all of our history, but it's the most significant part of our history, we've demonstrated that we human beings have incredible capacity to create wealth and value and meaning for us as human beings. Uh, the mere fact that Peter and I can have this conversation today, I don't even know where Peter is. He doesn't know where I am. It's being conducted over a, a a medium that both, neither of us understand well enough to be able to create, but it's something that human beings have collectively created and the number of people involved in making this happen is just phenomenal. So human capacity to create wealth and value, let me just pause and say sometimes to the detriment of the rest of the planet, so I want to acknowledge that, but leaving that out for a minute, human capacity to create wealth and value is remarkable. What we have not done particularly well is worked out how to distribute that wealth and value. Mm. And the current method of distribution, which essentially is the job, seems to me to be dead, dying, and I would say good riddance. So we need to find another way to do that distribution. And my preferred way of that distribution is to think about it by nature of a community dividend or a citizen dividend. If you own shares in a corporation that is creating value, you get shares, your, your, your shares in that corporation earn you a dividend. You get a representative proportion of the wealth and value that is created in the form of a dividend. Australia creates wealth and value. It is quite possible that 
that wealth and value could be distributed to Australians in the form of a community dividend. Some people call this a universal basic income. I don't like the phrase. I prefer citizen dividend or social dividend or something. But the idea is that the wealth that is created in society is distributed to those who have helped create it. And that strikes me as a model of a world I'd like to live in. Yeah, that's the Mondragon model that operates in Basque, Spain. It's the model on which Mondragon was based when it was created. But Mondragon has discovered, and this is the challenge for any of us who want to do this, that the bigger you get, the harder it is to maintain that model. And Mondragon is now huge, and there are any number of people in and around the Mondragon model who are questioning whether it is still maintaining its original conception of those values. But that certainly is absolutely the way Mondragon was originally created. Mm. So there might be a scale issue that Mondragon has bumped into that um, that the actual Mondragon-type community shared dividend model, a bit like the Athenian state, that there's a particular size that once you get to it, you have to break up. I would agree with that entirely. It's one reason why I haven't been welcomed inside large corporations as a futurist for quite a while. When they make the mistake of inviting me in, I tell them what they're going to do is break themselves up, and I don't like that very much. (laughs) Ah, dear. All right, Charles, look, I think I will wrap the interview there. It's been – thank you very, very much for taking some time out to talk to the FuturePod community, and I'll also acknowledge that you have been probably our earliest FuturePod patron. So, again, thank you for that as well. Well – it's, it's a pleasure. Congratulations to you on uh, supporting this process. Um, I also, as part of this, have followed, I, I probably got into the concept of foresight before you um, and I've watched you your journey through this process, particularly since Swinburne, and congratulations on maintaining your connection to the community in very innovative ways, despite the fact that the university wasn't prepared to recognise the value inside the university, you've continued it magnificently outside. So to you and your colleagues, exceptionally well done. Thanks, Charles. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.